All right, good morning. Well, if you're new to Bayview, <clears throat> you may not know this. All the regulars should know this, that uh, January, this time of year, we always set aside and we do a series on stewardship, um, which is interesting for me because when people come and visit in the summer and if they choose to stay at Bayview, the Lord's leading them here, uh, one of the most common questions I get going into the fall and later is they say, I mean, if you've been to churches, usually there's a time where they pass an offering plate, where they, they take a collection, and sometimes people say, it seems like you never talk about giving, and you don't even take a collection, and so then I say to them, well, we used to, we used to pass an offering plate, we also used to pass communion trays at communion, but you see we have communion up here today, and COVID stopped all that, we, and we haven't gone back to passing them in the way that we did. The collection, the way we take collection now is out in the foyer. There's a giving box. You can give into that when you come. But most of the people who give a baby give online. Most of it is online. So, however, what I will say is we teach uh, on giving uh, one time a year. When I get up to teach on it, I'm not raising money. What we're doing is we're just creating good stewards within our church of what God has given them. And uh, we've done that for a decade. Now, I will tell you that the subject is important. In fact, when you look at the Bible, maybe you don't know this, but there are 2,350 Bible verses that talk about money or finances. The New Testament alone, you can find 126 principles on giving and money. One-sixth of the entire content of the four Gospels, you'll find references money. One-third of all the parables are on money. One in every six verses in the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, talk about money. We are not raising money here. We are raising up faithful stewards of what God has given us because Christ Himself said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And He makes this link between possessions and money and actually how it can be a challenge to your faith in God. Follow that and you'll find who your real treasure is, what your real treasure is, is what He's saying. And so good stewards have to take that into account. Now, um, I did some research. Every year I teach on this, I have to sometimes be creative. I have tracked all the different passages that I've preached on in 10 years on stewardship because I don't want to keep recycling. I want you to see all the different places. Like today's passage, I've never taught on before in stewardship. That There's a lot of content on stewardship in the Bible. And I try to think about ways to frame it for you to remember it. And this year, in this month, we're going to be talking about stewardship with the context of being treasure hunters. That's right, treasure hunters. Now, I looked up, uh, it's interesting, greatest treasures ever found, greatest treasure hunters. A lot of interesting information uh, over the years. Some guys who searched, they found clues and maps, I don't know, but... They found sunken treasures in the ocean. Some found them buried under the ground in different places. 
but they're treasure hunters. But I start with that because what I'm going to say to you through the course of this month is this. Every one of you sitting here is a treasure hunter. You are. You are searching. Sometimes you're collecting things. Something drives you. Something that gives you value. Something you love a lot. And you're looking for it. We're all treasure hunters in some way. It could be accomplishments. It could be achievements. could be degrees. could be money, bank accounts. But we are treasure hunters. And so what I want to do is go to a place in the New Testament where Jesus talks about treasure hunting. And it's in Matthew chapter 13. And let me read it to you. There's only three verses that we're going to cover today. It's in Matthew 13. Verse 44 says this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Second example, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went out, sold all that he had and bought it. Father, I just pray as we look at these verses today that you would sharpen our hearts, raise our awareness to what Christ is trying to teach us in here and how it applies to us in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm framing this as treasure hunters. And as I break down these verses, the first point I'm going to give you is to talk about the searchers. And there's two of them. He's given us two examples. So we get to see this slightly different perspective. The first is the man, the man who found the treasure. And it doesn't say if he was searching for it or if he came across it and found it. But what it says is he found a treasure in a field. Okay? So that's the first character. The second is the merchant. The merchant, it specifically says, is in search. He's searching for it. It's the job. It's a merchant is someone who's buying and selling. And, and um, perhaps it was fine jewelry and, and rubies and diamonds and pearls are in there, but he's a merchant and he finds one pearl that stood out so great, he's going to go and get it, right? It says it was of great value. But there's, so there's two, two different kinds of searchers. Now, as we walk through this, what I'm going to try to um, apply here is that there are ways in which it's describing us. You are a treasure hunter. These are ways in which you search. It could be that you're like the merchant and you're searching. It could be you're like the treasure hunter who you found it as you either came across it or maybe you were searching it, searching for it, but it wasn't maybe a job like the merchant was. But nevertheless, two searchers in here, those who seek, the man and the merchant and the treasure in the pearl. Two different kinds of treasures found, okay? But they represent something. And what do they represent? He says, Christ, as he's telling the story, they are like the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is that? And the answer is that the kingdom of heaven represents there's a king, and it's his domain. The king... Christ, or God, the Father, heaven, 
and all that it entails, but I also liken it to Christ and what he did and the grace that he gives us. What did he do? He left heaven. He left something of the greatest value in the universe, came down to earth. We just celebrated this in the Christmas season, that little baby. Remember the mission of Christmas? He will save the world from their sins. And here's what the treasure is. The treasure is that you, being in rebellion to God, imperfect, standing next to a holy, righteous God, in that rebellion, one day we will stand and give account for that rebellion, and there will be judgment for that rebellion. But Christ, coming down, went to the cross. He lived a perfect life, and He took our place. He, he Move aside. I will take your place. The judgment will come upon me in the form of death on the cross, and yet He overcomes death. And He gives to us the opportunity to become a part of His kingdom, a child of God. And the reality is, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We haven't done anything to earn it. Any good things we do fall short of God's glory, the Bible says, and we don't deserve it. Yet the fact that we get it demonstrates the grace of God. The kingdom of heaven, Christ, and what He has given to us. Now, I would say to you that Christ Himself is the treasure. Don't overlook that. Sometimes we think of Christ like a ticket to get into something. If I have Christ, I can get into heaven. I remember when we lived in Los Angeles, I took my sons to, and my daughter, to my whole family, to Disneyland. And that's an expensive trip. But you get the ticket, you go, and the ticket gets you in. And when you give them the ticket, you get to go in, and then you enjoy Disneyland. And it'd be kind of a weird experience if you went out there, and there you are in the middle of Disneyland, and there's attractions, and there's the characters, you know, that dwell there. And, but we all stood around and went, the ticket, woo No. We're, the ticket was to get us in. But see, the difference is, is that Christ is the treasure. Yes, what He did on the cross covers our shortcomings, and because of that, we can have eternity, but it's not as if we take like that ticket and do this. He is the treasure. And so just let's, there's two, two searchers here. The treasure and the pearl that are found are representative of what I've just described. Christ, He's the treasure, but what He did for us and the grace that we get from Him, that's the treasure. Now, we have the man and the merchant, the treasure and the pearl. And I want to talk to you about the value because there's something that we can draw from the treasure itself and the pearl itself. There's a hidden value you may just overlook. The first, the treasure. Now, when I looked up uh, the words in the, in, in the original, what they mean, you get little insights, you know, and it was like, what it said about the treasure, the way it's worded is it's something that was done in the past and hidden, which would be obvious, right? There's something unnatural about that in the sense that the man is walking through the field, either he finds it or discovers it, right? Okay. And he doesn't look, and here's a chest and there's a bunch of gold in it. He doesn't go, wow, how did that get there? Mother nature just put it there. No, 
it's obvious that there was some work done in the past and it was hidden to protect it, but now it's come to me. Now, how does it come? Well, two ways, I think. And this is what's interesting about the man. Because the verb, the action can be either I'm doing the action or I'm receiving the action or both. I like the example of I cut myself because I did the action and received it. So what I want to know is I'm looking there, did the man do the action of finding it or was it I came across it? Because both represent how the gospel came to you. It could be. See, the merchant is searching. But there's a way in which the gospel can come to us both naturally and unnaturally. Somebody can come and bring the gospel message to you. But there are also those who naturally, they see it. Like the pearl. Where's its value? Its value is not like the treasure. No person came and unnaturally put it all together and earthed it. The pearl comes about naturally. A piece of sand gets into that mouth of the, of the oyster and the pressure over a long period of time produces this beautiful pearl. Natural. No man came along and opened it up, put it in there, shut it, and buried it. And there's a way in which the gospel is like that. Something done long ago, what was it? Well, the work of Christ, that treasure that I described. He came down long ago. He did something. And it's been protect, protected and preserved over time, and it's come to us now. Some of us, it came to us because, because we came across it. Some of us, because someone came to you and they were looking to share the gospel, but it can come to us either way. Sometimes the natural is like the person is looking at the universe. The Bible says, the heavens declare the majesty of God. You can look at the world and it can tell you something about God. Sometimes I get asked this question being a pastor, like, what do you think about the universe? It's so big. Is there other people out there, you know? And one of the responses I give is, you know, I think the universe is so big and expansive because it's communicating to us that our God is big. Because you've got to be bigger than the thing you're making. The power it took to create something that big, I can't even fathom it. But the Bible says you can discern something about God to look, just looking at the universe. There's a natural way of discover, to discover that. Preservation. I was thinking about um, how we get this, how it was written down long ago, and the preservation of that, kind of like the treasure. It was, they, they buried it and protected it for someone to come along later to find it, and if you study how we got this book, I mean, one of, the, one of the ways in which God preserved this was through monasteries, where priests said, we can't be part of the world, we're going to seclude ourselves in here. I mean, we went through a period that we call the Dark Ages. There were times where the church was under persecution. There was time where the vast majority of people were illiterate and couldn't read. How do we get this book today? secluded, buried in monasteries, some of those priests, they took to, uh, to writing and copying, starting with originals, copying and copying. This book is the most well-preserved book of all writings of antiquity. More than 27,000 copies have been found. 
You've heard the story about the little boy walking along. He sees caves. He takes a rock. He's trying to throw rocks up into that cave. And he hears a psh like broken glass. He runs back, tells adults, hey, they come, they climb up, they look in there. You know what they find? Jars of clay. His rocket hit a jar of clay and shattered it. And they began to get these things down. They look inside and they unearth old scrolls where they had been. I mean, sometimes these things are hidden because, hey, the barbarians are coming. They're going to lay siege. And they would take and they would go hide them somewhere. And they began to unroll them and read them. Do you know they found the entire book of Isaiah in our Old Testament? And then they began to translate it. And they, they go, they translate it, and then they take what we have right here, and they compare 99% the same. Differences are like punctuation or word order. Or you might say the Lord our God or God our Lord. But the meaning is the same. Preservation. In fact, the New Testament calls us to preserve the truth. Paul says to Timothy, pass on what I taught you to faithful men who could do the same. It's a preservation of truth. But what I am talking to you about now is the hidden value, things you may not think about, that God has preserved and brought forward in time a true treasure, the Word of God who Christ is, the gospel message, and it's come to you, sometimes naturally, sometimes unnaturally. But these are the searchers. And the searchers, when they find that treasure, what are they like? Well, when you read this passage, it says, the man found, covered it up, then in his joy, so he's, he's joyous. Who wouldn't be full of joy, right? If you found Treasure chest of gold or the, a pearl of great price. But I want to give you more than that. I, I just put them up on one slide. I, I, I think there's three things. Three things that, that they are satisfied with. The first is now they have some direction in life. What it, they, they're making, they're, there's a direction because they're going to go and do something. This discovery is causing them to go do something else. It's giving them a direction in life and, it's, and a bit of a destiny. I mean, when you put into here your belief that Jesus Christ was real, He died for me, and now you're, you are brought into the family of God, the Bible says you are now part of the family of God. Christ is, is a brother. You have a heavenly Father. There's an adoption that takes place. There is nothing else that can ever compare to that. Whatever else you're chasing over here, degrees, bank accounts, promotions, whatever. Hey, I just uh, got a raise. Hey, I just got moved up in my rank in the military. Hey, I was promoted. Hey, all of that comes down like this and is so small by comparison, minuscule to the title of, I'm in the family of the king of the universe. Is there inheritance? Oh yeah, it's enormous. And it can never be taken away or rust or stolen. It's, and it's eternal. I mean, you are a child of the king of the universe. What else could ever compare to that? And, and in our life, sometimes we come over here and we just care so much about all these identities over here that mean nothing by comparison to this. Somehow we, we take these identities like this and we put this identity lower. And yet, 
I think, the joy that he finds, the direction. I'm going to go do something. It's giving them a destiny. I remember when my father had a conversation with me about direction because I went to college and I started out a business major. Freshman year, they gave me all these senior level classes. I don't know why. I was bored to death in these managerial and financial accounting classes, a lot of math and adding, and I'm sitting there, and the teacher's boring. Bueller, Bueller, if you know that reference. And then it's like, I went and I told my dad, the class that I like the most is my Bible class. And somehow it's, it, it was like a seed that grew within me, and I felt, and I began to ask him, how did you know when God was calling you to be a pastor, Dad? And this conversation was about direction in my life. And I remember him saying to me, when God calls you to be a pastor, it really gives you a solid line about where you're going in life. Because everything else is secondary to that calling. You are going to go serve in ministry. If you're a pastor, you're not chasing climbing up any corporate ladders. It's like, God, where do you want me to go? Where are you calling me to? I mean, he called Jonah to Nineveh. He called Paul to different cities. He just calls you and you go and you serve. It's not about, well, what's the package like, the financial package? It's not like that. Where does God call you? And, and there's, a, there's a measure of that in this. You see, he has joy. A joy because he has found the one important thing in life. Think about this. If it's true, and I believe it, that there's a real God created the universe and he made you. If you don't know that or understand that, there's, a, there's an aspect there where you can never fully understand your purpose and destiny. You can't. Why did He make you? It wasn't because He was bored or lonely. There is a purpose and a reason behind creation. If you don't have that connection with the Creator, there's something missing, and it doesn't matter what you take out of life and put into that. Whatever title or accomplishment, it can never replace the first purpose that you find in being a creation by the king of the universe. These guys, the, the searchers, they find it. The treasure is Christ and who I am in Him. The treasure is of great value. It gives them joy. I finally know who I am. I'm a child of God. Now look what happens next. Yes, they're satisfied, but now I'm going to use the word sowers. Sowing is where you take a seed and you put it in the ground, you cover it up with dirt, you water it, and something's going to grow, okay? And Christ uses this analogy. Everything you're doing in life is sowing something. If you spend a lifetime training something in a sport, you're sowing up to reap something later. Later in life, I'm going to be able to compete at a level higher than if I hadn't done all this work. You see that? If I spend a lifetime studying sciences, it's going to lead me up to something, everything. If I'm parenting and I can give all my time into my children and, I, and I'm working so hard at it, that's going to be different than a parent who abandons those children. We're both going to sow something later in life. It could be that I'm a parent, that I have a great relationship with my kids and they come around. It could be 
My kids go, you never gave us any time of day. We're not going to give you time of day. You're always sowing something. Now, what are these guys going to sow? That's what I'm going to ask. The first is they recognize. They make a choice. They see this as having value. Christ has value. The greatest value. So there's a choice that's going to be made. All of you are making choices. All of you are treasure hunters. You're making choices about what you're pursuing and you're sowing. You are sowing something. And it leads you to act, right? If you make a decision about what is going to bring you purpose, what's going to be an identity you want, a rank, an accomplishment, and you make those decisions, you're going to act to try to, try to achieve those in your life, to try to bring them into your life. Now, with these guys, the choice is I see the value in this treasure. I mean, the one guy covers it up. He doesn't want to lose it, right? But both of them go. And what does it say they do? Take out a loan? No. They sell everything. They leverage everything to grab on to these, what they perceive as the greatest treasure. And so I put here, there's a reorienting of life. A total reorientation of their life. So think about it this way. If you're a person out there and you own a house, you own a car, maybe you own multiple cars, all of the clothes that you have in your closet, all your, your phone, your media that you have, TVs, what if I said, I want you to sell everything? Do you think it would change your life? I mean, that is a reorienting of your life. A total reorientation of your life. And that's what those guys do. This is so valuable, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leverage everything I have around it. I'm going to sell everything I have. And I think it's the greatest point to be made from these three verses. When you truly have the treasure of Christ, it changes your life. You begin to build your life around the things of Christ because you see the value and it gives you purpose and destiny and a joy unspeakable. Now, I put up there the rich young ruler as a contrast because it's exactly that. He came to Jesus. He said, I, I want what you have. I like what you're saying. I'm buying into it. Well, what do I have to do to attain the kingdom, to be in this kingdom? And the answer is, do this, do that, do this, right? You know, and, and everything Jesus says, he's like, got it. Check that box. Going to do it. Yes. And then he gets to the last one, right? And what is it? Sell everything you own. What a contrast. These two guys come across it. I'm going to reorient my whole life. I'm going to sell everything I have. The rich young ruler, it says he walked away sad because... He owned a lot of stuff. Now, this is why we talk about stewardship, because stuff can drive you away from the greatest treasure, Jesus Christ. We have to cycle it in every year because we're so materialistic. We are treasure hunters to a degree that we reorient our life around the stuff that we want, not Jesus Christ. And so, the lesson that we take away here, because the rich young ruler, it was like, you know what? I, I like this kingdom thing. I want to be a part of this kingdom. You 
great king. Oh, wait a minute. I have to give up that? Oh, no, I'm, I'm the king of that. And what you see here is, is a battle between two kings. King of the universe, king money. A fight. And the rich young ruler is right. The rich young ruler is like, I, I, I can't give it up. And there's a measure of that in all of us. In all of you, there's something you don't want Christ to be king of. There's so much about Jesus you like. I like that he, so much he says I like. You know, he's, he's giving, he loves people, he, there's so much. But, you know what? I can't give up everything. I can't give up everything for him. One pastor said it this way. You can't, actually, let me read you Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's why we cycle in the stewardship series, because it's such a challenge. You cannot serve both. You can't have two kings. You can't have two masters. Now, one pastor put it this way. You can't properly value grace and allow your celebration and pursuit of grace to be relegated to the time left in a schedule that is fully booked in pursuit of another kingdom. That is the challenge. And the way that I lay it out to our church every year is, what are you pursuing? You can't be excited about the king of the universe. You can't be a person who's changed by the grace of God and then somehow take the orientation of Christ in my life and sideline it because I'm just so busy with all these other things in life. That's not the message that Christ preached. It's a reorientation of your life. Now, here's what I'm going to do. In the last 10 years, when I teach on this subject, I always come up or find principles about stewardship. And sometimes every principle has been an entire sermon. And what I want to do is to give you 10 of the best, my favorite, that we've taught over the years on one list. I've never done this. Each one could be a sermon in and of itself, but I'm going to go through them quickly to let you see them, to show you how important this subject is. Also, I look at it this way. I ask the question, what makes a good treasure hunter? I actually found a list online, what makes a good treasure hunter? Knowledge of maps, knowledge of languages, Local culture, where the treasure is, you got to know something, maybe the history of what's going on there. I put adventure skills because I don't know what kind of treasure. Maybe you got to kayak or spelunk or cl climb cliffs. I don't know. You got to maybe have some skills specific to the treasure you're going after. I put a means of support, right? Some, some, somehow you're funding all this, but also I just put for fun there maybe a whip and an Indiana Jones hat, right? You know, that maybe you need that for your skills you know, as your treasure hunter. What makes a good treasure hunter, right? Now I'm going to ask it this way. What makes a good steward? Because it's not Indiana Jones hat. What makes a good steward? And I want you to, in that frame, I want you to listen to these, these 10 points. We'll go through them fast. But this is what makes good steward is understanding these. Number one, God owns everything, not us. And I love this verse. Every one of these, there's a lot of verses I could use. I'm just going to give you one. But this one from 1 Chronicles says, Who am I and what is my people that we should be thus 
to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own have we given you. That last part is gold in and of itself because what it's saying is this. When you give to God, you're just giving Him His own stuff. That's it. Yesterday, I had a guy come to my office. He brought with him something and gave it to me. I had forgotten about I had given it to him five years ago. Five years ago, and I forgot about it. He came, he says, hey, I'm going to give this to you. But I'm like, this is mine. You're just giving back what's mine, <laughs> you know. What you been doing with it? <laughs> but that's how it is. Every time you give to God, you're just giving him his own stuff back. You need to understand that. You are a steward. You are not the owner of the things in your life. Because he owns everything. I could walk you through a lot of verses where he talks about that. I own the gold. I own the silver. I own the trees. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. That is a foundational point to understanding stewardship. Number two, God cares about the heart of a giver. Now just read this with me. This comes out of the Old Testament. It says, How have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. I think I wrote that twice. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Now what I want you to see is God's making a connection there. That there are sometimes what you're giving, the way you're giving it, He's using the word evil. The motivation and the understanding has to be right. You could be over here and say, look at all I've done for mankind. I'm a philanthropist, someone who helps mankind out. But the motivation is the recognition you get with that. The motivation, what you've done, doesn't necessarily build the kingdom of God. There's a separation there. We're supposed to give in a way that God lays it out for the kingdom of God. But what we're seeing here in the Old Testament, and it says it a different way in the New Testament, there's a way in which you can give that affects your heart. He there is saying it was evil. That means your motivation was wrong. And one, I think the reason I cycle in stewards, stewardship so much is people underestimate how impactful it is to your spiritual growth and faith. I grew the most as a Christian young man when I became independent, married with children and had to work, do, do, stretch a budget out because it's hard to give when you have so many demands as a family. But there's a way in which it is about faith. If I say to God, I'm going to give this much to you every month, then it's a test to do, it's hard to give it away because I could use it for other things. And a lot of times we are using what God gives us just to buy more stuff for us that maybe we don't even really need. Now, hold on to that thought because some of these tie together. But number three is God's people take the time to consider their response. And look what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. But what Paul is talking about is being thoughtful about what you're going to give and when. And that's what I mean by putting these together. What I had to do is I would come over here with my wife, 
And we would have a conversation. What do we want to give to God? On a regular basis, what are we going to give? Because if you never think about it, then what happens is you come and you oh, oh, we're going to give something. Well, what do I have on me? Okay. That's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about coming aside, and it uses the words like consider, think about, think about what you're going to give, and then you come. And what grew me in my faith was we said, we're going to give this amount, and then we come, and we, because I sat in uh, David Jeremiah's church for a decade, and he, this is where I get preaching once a year on, because I sat for 10 years under Jeremiah teaching every January on stewardship. And everything he said happened to me in my life. We went away, we made consideration, we come back, we're going to give this much, this is our commitment. And then what would happen is the van would break down and we need a new transmission. And it's like, I'm so tempted now, we, can't, we don't have enough money. Well, we, have, we could take it from God and use it to that. And it's kind of a ministry because we need it and we rationalize it and we were always tested this way. And it's just amazing to stick with commitments to God and grow faith. Because what you're saying is, I'm going to trust that God will provide for me in my budget without whatever percentage it is that I'm going to commit to give to Him. That's how He grows faith within you. Now, let's look at the next one, which says, God's people give significantly to where they worship. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, I draw this from the idea of what membership is. Paul talks about how the human body has all these parts and they're interconnected and dependent upon one another for life. And he says that's how the church is. A lot of individuals make up a whole. There should be an interdependency within you providing and helping, praying and loving one another in a way that gives life to the whole body. And when you look at the early church, that's what you saw. It says that all the needs were met. First of all, they had a knowledge of what the needs were, but it says people gave always enough to help meet the needs. If there's, if there's a part of the body that has a need and this part of the body over here can give it, then it helps that's how it is. My human body, to stick with Paul's analogy, it never would one part of my body say, you know what, other part of the body, I know you're hurting, but you're on your own. It doesn't work like that. I mean, even if I get wounded, one of the first things I do is all parts of my body come to protect it, to help it. And this is part of how God also grows our faith and how we give in such a way that we are meeting the body. It would be terrible if one part of my body said, you know what, I know I'm all interconnected here, but I'm going to give to that body over there. And suddenly, you know, whatever life-giving aspect that God created it to do and gave it, it just stops, it ceases, whatever it is. The heart, you know what, I'm going to pump over there. Well, that's going to affect this body. And so I have always used the phrasing, because I know people are diverse in how they give. But what you see is this interdependency of God's body in giving. And so the way that I've always phrased it is that God's people should be giving the significant amount of what they give to God, whatever it is you decide upon, to the body that they're interconnected with. Okay? Now, number two, or number five, I mean, God's stewards 
live with an open hand. Job's probably the best at illustrating this. It says Job was overwhelmed with grief, yet his faith in God did not falter. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, I use this every year I cycle it in. Take your hands and go like this. This is called the open hand principle. You live with an open hand. Because when you live with an open hand, God can put stuff in your hand. And you go to God, you say, you know, God, I need like a transmission, like I said. How am I going to, you know, and this is where God grows faith. It's like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I need it. So I'm living like this. And this is where, how most of us are. We go to God and we ask a lot. We have needs, not just uh, financial, but all kinds of needs. And we like this. And then we want God to come down and put it in our hands. But the soon, as soon as God takes things out of our hands, we go like this. And now we're living like this. Hey, 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 bring that back. You can't take that. I need that. And that's not biblical. If it all belongs to God, God can come over here and take out of your hand and bring it over here and put it in this person's hand. That's how it works. If you live with an open hand, there's always the opportunity for God to bless you and put it in there. But you have to understand it belongs to Him and He may want to use it to help somebody else. If you're interconnected in a way to the body of Christ and you know there's a need over there, I shouldn't have to let God come and take it. I say, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to do it myself. But this says it all belongs to God. And I live this way so that you can put it in, but you can take it out. And Job was rich. He was rich. And God took everything. He emptied his hands. And his friends said, curse God. Look, he doesn't like you. And he did it. And he said, I understand this principle. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And then what does he say? Blessed be the name of of the Lord. What was the purpose? To give God glory. Because Satan was like, he's going to curse you, but he didn't. And God got the glory from it. And you know what? In the end, God filled his hands back up in the end. But you live like this. Now, um, number six, good stewards give freely, cheerfully, and sacrificially. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful liver, uh, giver. There's a lot in there. Let me point a couple of things out. First of all, it says, each one of you give as you have made up your own mind. Now, I take that. You know what it says to me as a pastor? I cannot tell you what to give. You've got to make it up in your own mind. That's why you go away, you have conversation, and you come back and you make a commitment Am I going to reorient my life in a way that's giving more to kingdom things, to God? But that's between you and God. Now, at some point in the series, I always talk about percentage because people have questions about tithing and the percentage and stuff. But let me say it this way right now. It says it's your responsibility. Also, cheerfully, cheerfully. I mean, we just had Christmas, right? And you're exchanging gifts and, you know... It would be really strange if on Christmas somebody gave a present over the other side of the living room and was like, here you go, I had to spend money on you. What kind of, it's like, well, thanks, this doesn't make me feel very loved. Yeah, a lot of times this is how we are with God. It's like, oh, I gotta give, or he wants. If it's not cheerful, then he doesn't, he doesn't want that. 
This is why the first, one of the first points was he cares about the heart. That says something about your heart. You have to be a cheerful giver. You have to... I love giving gifts. What I love about Christmas, giving gifts, you know, and modeling that so that my kids growing up see that, cheerful givers. You know, even like my daughter when she was really young, she, was really young, she, she would want to be a part. She has no, she doesn't have any job, right? Her gifts might be, I just showed some people at, in between the services in my office. I have like, it was a piece of cardboard. She got a picture of me and her together. She glued it and then she bedazzled it. And she's like, life is better with dad. You know, that's a great gift. You know, it wasn't like, this thing's made of cardboard. That would be terrible, right? You be a cheerful giver. That's what we want. And we model that to other believers, to other family members. And sacrificial is a part of that, which we'll cover also in the series. But I got to move through these because we've got communion. Um, The next one is giving to God is His way of providing for you. Let me just show you this in uh, Corinthians 9, such a great chapter on this. But it says, verses 6 and 11, and God is able, now listen how many times you hear the word all, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Just think about farming. Anytime you plant a seed and whatever grows up out of it, it doesn't have one seed. Almost, I mean, I'm not a, uh, I don't know every plant in the world. But most of them, like you, you plant an apple seed, it grows up a tree, there's lots of apples, you pick apples, it's got a lot of seeds in it. There's more seeds that come out. And that is a principle of sowing. He actually says in there, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. And there's a principle that says, be generous. Give, and then God gives back to you, and it's one of the ways He provides for you. And sometimes with people, it's like maybe you're struggling to make ends meet because you actually don't sow into kingdom things very well. So it's a thought. But not only does he, giving to God, provide for you, giving to God provides for ministry. Because in that same verse, and that's what the next one is, hey, giving to God is his way of providing for ministry, you see, and God is able to bless you abundantly. It's the same passage. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in what? every good work. I don't sow so that God can give back generously so now I can just invest all of it in worldly stuff. It's not, that's not God's plan. He blesses you so that you can now turn and be a blessing to other people. If God is generous to you, He wants you to be generous to others. If I go back to that Christmas principle, it's like all these years, you know how many years it's like giving gifts to your kids? I love it. But it's so fun to see them grow up now, and now they want to be givers. It would be something that's like, I blessed you for 20 years, giving you gifts, and they grow up and like, well, I'm not going to give a gift to anyone. I would go, what's wrong with you, kid? You see what Christmas has been like all these years, and there's a principle behind, look, God, I mean, the fact that we're adopted into His family, the grace that is there should motivate you to have grace and be generous 
That's what he desires, and cheerfully. And he gives to you for what? Every good work. And he goes on to say, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So I'm going to move through these. Number nine is giving is the antidote to covetousness. This is my favorite one, actually. Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of covetousness. And he goes on to say in Hebrews 13, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. But look at what it says, beware, beware of the growing, ever-growing desire within you to want more and more stuff. It's insatiable. You can never fully fill it. Whatever you get to level in life, finally, I got a big house and I got nice cars. You're going to want the next thing. I heard a pastor say once, I never think about spending money on multi-million dollar yachts. But if I made a billion dollars, I might. When you get more money, most of the time, you just think about buying stuff for yourself. And there's a way in which covetousness comes into our life, and we want, and we want, and we want. Tim Keller said, there will be more people in hell because of the sin of greed than any other sin. And he went on to say, you know why? Because it's so hidden. You don't know. How, how do you know when you're greedy? See, other sins, you murder. Yeah, we know that was, that was wrong. You know, it's like, I made a commitment to marriage, and then somehow I developed a relationship with another woman, and I ended up in bed with her, and over months we're having this affair. You don't wake up one day and go, oh my word, we're having an affair. No. You know. You might make excuses why. But see, greed is, greed is like you don't even know it's there. It's deceptive. Are you greedy? And most of the time it takes somebody else on the outside to point it out to you. And it's one of the warnings that Christ gives. Beware of coveting. It's sneaky. But giving is God's way of battling it. Now, just what you think about this. I got this one from John Piper. He said, to give is to not buy. Every time you give, you have to think through what you might be able to buy with what you're giving. And it grades against coveting. If I give $100 away, oh, I could have bought this. And so God builds into us the practice of giving to other people's needs where you have to say no to something to yourself. Giving is the antidote. It's like when you're driving one of those go-karts. Have you ever driven a go-kart? And I'm, when I get in those, and especially if I went with my boys, I just want to waste them. You know, like, Rrr! and you're like, oh, I got out ahead, and I'm going to open it up. And you push that pedal down, and it goes, Rrr! like, what's the deal? It's because they put, they put these things on there called governors where they regulate. You can't go over a certain speed. And you're like, upset about that. <laughs> it's for your safety, I suppose. But the reality is giving is like that. Giving is like a, it, it helps govern your propensity for spending a lot. And so God builds this in to our life. Now the last one here, 
is giving is an act of worship. Let me just explain it this way. Okay, I'll use shine. Can I use shine? During our worship, I look around, people worship in different ways. Some of you are like this. Some of you raise your hands. Now, what would it be if I came over, like I came over to shine, and I was like, why aren't you raising your hands? How come you're just, you know, like this? I didn't actually look at you. I wasn't watching. But let's say, let's say you were just like this. And this guy over here is like, whoa. And I was like, why can't you be like that person? You know? It's because I don't do that because worship is something between you and God. And usually what you're doing is a response to God and what He's done for you or maybe something particular at that time in your life. And giving is like that. Giving is like sometimes what you're giving is connected to your response to God. And I don't come, and, I, and here's what I say every time I preach on stewardship, you should know this. I don't know, as the pastor of this church, what anybody in this room gives. And we did that on purpose. I learned that from my dad. My dad said, son, when you preach, you don't want to look out there and see dollar signs. And sometimes people give money in a way that they think they should have some type of special treatment. And only a week or so ago, I was talking with someone, and they were telling me a story about a man who said, I'm going to go talk to the pastor. Well, you shouldn't do Well, I am because I give a lot of money to this church. This wasn't our church. And I was like, see, you're giving in a way that you think you're getting influence. That's not giving to God. You're giving to yourself. Now, to me, giving is an act of worship. I don't know what people give, and we've done that on purpose because I want you to go away. You make up your mind. It's between you and God. Now, I have a little more to say about that because the Scripture does, but in these 10 points is what I'm going to give you today. And uh, over the years, we've taught these principles here and man, God has really used our church. The response of this church has been just awesome. And everything that I'm saying, God has done here. We have been able to help people member to member because of needs. We've been able to, like they supported Paul on his missionary trips, support missions, support the work of God. We've supported Bible translators. And the work of God's being done and the needs of people being met. And in the end, God's glorified in it all. But the challenge that I would say to you, you're a treasure hunter. And I wanted to kick off the month by just asking you, what is the real treasure that you're chasing? What is it? Are you someone who reorients himself or herself towards what has the greatest value, Christ and His kingdom? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges that it brings. Thank you for the work that you've done over the years in our church, through the, the people of this church, even if they're here temporarily. Those who have been here all the years I've been have got to see all the different ways in which you've used our church to be able to, be able to um, spread the gospel, to be able to um, help other members, uh, and just do the work. And I, I pray, Lord, that through this month that we'd be able to challenge those who are sitting out there to look at their hearts. The two examples in contrast, the man and the merchant sold everything. They reoriented themselves towards the kingdom of Christ. The rich young ruler, he would have gone most of the way, but not all the way. 
and he walked away. He, he missed out on the treasure of Christ. So what kind of treasure hunters do we have in this church? In what ways can we give all to God? Be 100%. Just what is it about my life that is building the kingdom of Christ? We lift this up in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, we're going to finish with communion. I want to ask you to go ahead and stand. They're going to, they're going to lead us in our last song. During this song, I'm going to invite you to come forward, get one of the cups, and then go back to your seat. And when they're done playing, we're going to partake as a church in communion. Sometimes it gets crowded, so just you don't have to come right away. You can come whenever you want. And then uh, prepare your heart, because communion is going before the Lord. And it's a time of responding to his word, his message. And you do that through the last song. Okay?